What is poppin'? It is a slap the nine but a lowly slapped and riding these refi waves and this is this week in refi where we give you all of the refi news that is fit to go ape wild over. Of course with me is the man with the plan, the man with the waning yet perpetual summer tan, the Estonian madman Sir Rez. It's me. Hello. It is in fact you and we have two very special and distinguished guests. We have Sue, uh, the monosyllabic but hopefully, oh definitely polymathic. And perhaps polyrhythmic, Sue, the Forest Project Coordinator at Open Forest Protocol. Indeed. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us on. Hello. And we have the Troll Bane, and we'll get into that, the Product Developer Lead for Open Forest Protocol, Luke. Howdy, y'all. Good to see you. Very exciting stuff. We're going to get into Open Forest Protocol uh, deep dive today. Uh, we will talk about how Luke destroys trolls or at least manages them. We have all sorts of things to talk about. Um, and before we get into that, I would be remiss if I did not draw your attention to the best job board in all of ReFi. Of course, I am talking about refijobs.com. Free to join, curated. Go get that. Become one of us, do well and good at the same time, and uh, maybe we'll see you, you here one day talking about refi stuff. Okay, the million dollar, well, there's a bunch of million dollar questions. Before we get into the million dollar questions, actually, I want to know your backstories. Uh, let's start with Sue. Sue, how did you get into uh, to this space? What was your journey? What would you like to share about that? Sure. So, um... I've actually been sharing the refi job board with people and telling the story a little bit because people think that to be working in crypto, to be working in refi, you have to have some sort of, uh, you know, background that makes you uh, like some kind of somehow technologically capable of doing it. That was not at all the case for me. So I was brought on because um, I had a friend who is the co-founder of Force Protocol. He um, needed somebody with some kind of environmental background. I studied environmental science. My background is in restoration, ecology, research, stuff like that. Um, and he was like, hey, do you want to learn everything about crypto and then just start running this business development? So like there, uh, I think that's something that is really great is that I had a, a gr good amount of ecological knowledge that has made my job a lot easier. But I really just came into this uh, two years ago. Um, I just kind of started. We we're starting the company all kind of collectively from the ground up. So I, um, everyone was kind of learning at the same time with me. So um, I just have, I was thrown into the deep end, you could say. So I have a background in ecology um, and then just went right into it. And I found the space to be really welcoming. Your story, I've heard time and time again, I'm also very similar. Rez, I think you are as well. Um, this is a space that swallows you whole. Nobody, it seems, yeah. intended to be here, and then once you get in, you can't get out. It's just like the gravity of a thousand dwarfs, sons, or yeah. something like that. So definitely can relate. Also, Sue, follow-up question. How many times have you been misgendered because of your screen name? Regularly. Um, I to did the it. point sometimes I self-identify as a boy named Sue from the Johnny Cash <laughs> song, but it's 2022. You know, you can call me whatever. Love it. <laughs> and uh, Luke, what was what is your journey? What is your background? How did you get here? I just want to add a little bit there because Sue also was the uh, the chief meme smith for uh, <laughs> Nier's, I think, entire community arm for a solid period of time. So he 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 is a little bit more degen than he makes himself out to be. Love um, but I I got into this. Um, I think my first introduction to blockchain technology was whenever I was in college. Um, I went to a lecture in like 2014, 2015. And a professor was talking about blockchain and I was like, oh, that's kind of neat. And after the, the the thing, we had like a little happy hour and I was, I was talking to some, some other students and I met this guy who had gotten kicked out of his house for mining Bitcoin. 
because he jacked up the the energy, the electric bill so high because he was running all these mi- uh, Bitcoin early, early mining rigs. And he was looking for someone to take him in in exchange for Bitcoin. Obviously, I turned him down at the time because, you know, who, who, who knew anything about that? And life is full of regrets. But um, it was a very in- instrumental kind of moment in showing how, how disruptive blockchain can be for me. And, and it's always kind of piqued my interest in then. So I've been kind of dancing wait, around wait, technology. Um, wait, what was that? Wait, blockchain is disruptive because it got somebody kicked out of their uh, house. That's amazing. It, you know, people say you say that things are disruptive, right? And and that kind of it, it's a word in your mind. But until you see it physically displace someone from their home and, and upset an entire house full of people, it's I don't know that that for me was a very visual uh, example of, of kind of <laughs> what this can do. Obviously, there's amazing and a million other better uh, use cases for the disruptive nature of blockchain. But um, but yeah, that was that was kind of my first introduction to I it. I love it and. That always been interested in it since, and so um, I, I was also in scouts. So I love the outdoors. I love nature. And when Open Force Protocol kind of came, came along, it was um, just a match made in heaven. I was working in um, sustainable commercial real estate at that time, uh, doing financial modeling there. And uh, and I was you know in my spare time teaching myself how to code smart contracts and reading books about blockchain. And uh, and so yeah, whenever the, the opportunity came around, it, it just was a, a match made in heaven. Very cool. Always interesting to hear people's journey. I'm also in real estate. I do real estate investing, so it's very interesting. I have yet to meet someone actually uh, in this space from a real estate background. Very cool stuff. So now here's the million dollar question, maybe the trillion dollar question. I don't know what's bigger than a trillion. What is, this is like the most loaded question, right? What is Open Forest Protocol? I'm going to, Luke, would you probably be the most comfortable as the project uh, or uh, product design lead, right? Like, how would you describe this to someone who had no knowledge of it? What would be like an elevator pitch of it? Yeah. Um, so some some might say we bring truth to trees. Um, but I think I think a really easy way to understand it is that there are, there's mass deforestation occurring around the world, right? In the last 30 years, we've lost, um, I'm from Texas, we've lost like two Texases worth of trees globally. Um, it's an astounding, uh, the, the the actual square kilometer hectare number is, is astoundingly high. Um, the rate isn't slowing down. It's causing all of these big issues. So if we look at what's causing those problems, the deforestation, typically it's financial reasons. Typically trees are getting cut down for agriculture, for cattle raising, very legitimate reasons that that people are, are needing to convert those land uses into different things for, for survivability. And this is happening all around the world. So there's there's no moral uh, judgment assigned to that. But the fact remains that there are financial reasons that are leading to the mass deforestation around this world. And so what Open Forest Protocol does is it provides a platform to help um, establish that foundation that you can then get financial support to continue to plant and operate a forest. We provide a super transparent and free to use platform for monitoring and reporting what's going on on your forest. And then through that platform, you can get access to other types of financial tools to help support the activities that you're doing on the ground. That was very well said. So, and and Rez and I were discussing this prior to this call saying, you know, we were trying to wrap our head around it. And I was on a call yesterday with you, or you had a, a, a call where you had a, you know, basically explaining your platform. Is it fair to say that right now the mission, the goal, the focus is just on that MRV portion and you will iterate or build off of that once that's established? Is that a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. So what we've built at this point, I I won't get too much into the details. I I don't know if we're at that point yet. Uh, But what we've built at this point is essentially a, a DMRV system, decentralized measurement, reporting and verification system 
that enables individual people who own or manage a forest project to basically take photos and, and tree measurements and provide statistically significant measurements and reporting of what's going on within their forest project. Um, report that and have that validated by a big decentralized group of basically data auditors, not so much blockchain validators, but data auditors who are looking at this data. If you're familiar with the carbon credit industry or the, the voluntary carbon market, um, kind of similar to VVBs, uh, verification validation bodies. So basically we have this system where anybody who has a forest project can come on, they can register their forest in a blockchain based system where all data that enters the system is completely transparent and accessible to anybody in the world really. And, and then that data is then verified by a decentralized group of, of these validators. So that's the core of what we built right now. And then, you know, we can talk about kind of where that goes from there. Cool. So the couple things that I wanted to bring up that I saw yesterday, one is you have an app, right? And what was the name of the app? The Forester app. Forester app. And a couple cool things that, I, that you displayed about it. One is that it's uh, geofenced, meaning that if you were to verify something in Guyana um, from where I live in like New York City, that that would not fly because the phone knows that I am not at the place, right? Which is a really cool feature, right? Kind of builds trust. And the other thing that I really liked about it, one of the things that I knew you guys were real and I liked the way you thought was you said it's as simple as possible, right? It, it, it By design, it was supposed to be rudimentary. It was supposed to be a one-way transfer of information and so can you speak a little bit to why that's important? I know that's super important, but why did you do it that way? Why is that important? Totally. So we, we can, I can <clears throat> kind of use a little bit of our, our blockchain uh, background to, to explain that. So we designed OFP, uh, Michael Kelly was our chief architect. And so he, he, he is very much the, the one that, that um, kind of laid this all out. But the main purpose that we tried to achieve by designing OFP was, was to create a, a general purpose environmental data oracle. Um, specifically for trees right now, but you can kind of see in, in any data oracle, the flow of information is, is super, super critical. If we're looking at Chainlink, if we're looking at any of that, um, we need to be able to have outside information in the world be connected to a blockchain and then have that information verified or at least super secure, right? Um, having weather data fed into the blockchain or things like that. Um, so that is sort of what we tried to do with the app. We wanted to create a system where um, it, it was very difficult to falsify the data. Um, that's why we have the geofenced photos. So you can't take photos outside of the project area that's established on a, on a really like a web app dashboard. We can get to that later. It's a separate product. But yeah, it's, it's just a really simple, straightforward way of, of securely collecting that data and making it so that way, whenever those data auditors, those validators are looking at that information, they're pretty sure, they're pretty certain that that information was in fact collected in the geographic area that the projects are claiming to, to have been collecting it at. Roger that. And the other thing that was really cool was I believe the data is collected every six months originally. There are stages and then every year after a certain point. Um, can you speak to how that is typically collected? That sort of data is typically collected um, now at what lengths compared to the six months in one year? If I'm monitoring a forest, let's say. Yeah, yeah. Well, um Something important too, because to, MRV is so typically intricately tied to the the carbon sort of system, right? We're we're putting out a really good paper pretty shortly on on MRV and kind of the history of that, um, going back to like COP thirteen, right, and and when that was sort of uh, initialized by the UN. But um, the it, MRV typically goes in tandem with carbon accreditation 
methodologies. Um, you have a, a rule book that says, okay, here's this project. Uh, they're going to do this type of project activity. We're going to quantify the carbon in this way. And here's how we're going to measure that and make sure that that is actually happening, validate it, right? Um, so what we wanted to do was kind of look at that system and see how we can improve it. As it exists right now, due to very real cost uh, restrictions, typically, and I, I might, you know, I'm, I'm fairly certain this is what I see most of all in, in the documentation, in actual implementation, this might vary, of course, from project to project, but typically project data is validated by third-party validators every five years or so. At least that's the that's the maximum amount of time that projects can go by to not have their, their project validated by, by these third parties. We wanted to reduce that like, because, yeah. yes, yeah, exactly. Um, and and I'm, I'm also speaking primarily about uh, forest-based carbon carbon accreditation programs. And, yeah. and so if you look at um, Vera, Red Plus, uh, any CDM uh, methodologies about about these carbon carbon methodologies, then then yeah, that's that's five years is typically around the time at which those those projects are supposed to be validated. Um, and so we wanted to shorten that timeline because we can, and because it, it, we think that that provides a much clearer picture of what's going on on the ground, and it provides much more trust and and an accurate, truthful depiction of what's happening there. Um, so we've shortened it. So the first um, kind of four years or four stages that projects are uploading data. We, we segment open forest protocol by stages. The first four stages are six months long, and then you record data every year after that. So projects are uploading data once every six months for the first four uh, periods there, and then and then once per year after that. And so it, it, it in part works with um, uh, blockchain smart contracts. It makes it really easy to have those very clearly set periods there, but it also we think is going to be able to provide a much clearer picture of what's happening on the ground and, and, and also have a really big benefit for the projects there because that can inspire a lot more investor confidence than might be otherwise with a, with a five-year checkup. Yeah, because in five years, in that time, a lot can happen. You could have deforestation, you could have a fire, you could have natural events, right? So I do believe that that time frame by being shortened is very, you know, if you can do it, why not do it? So let's say, you know, I go into my backyard I have a bunch of trees. They're tagged. They have little IDs on them. I am gathering information with my app. The app is going to say sample these trees. I'm going to say the height. I'm going to say the diameter. I'm going to take a picture of them. Now, the the thing that is interesting to me is how does that get validated? Who are you know essentially this this VB you know this this verification body? Like who are they? How does that happen? Yeah, it's a great question. So. We, at this point, have three main products that are, that are out and live right now. Um, so we have the project operator dashboard. Project operators are the forest project developers or managers. Um, and that dashboard is something you'd access on a computer that connects directly to the blockchain. And that's one of the one of two uh, products that, that connects directly to the blockchain here. Um, the mobile app doesn't touch the blockchain. It can work remotely, doesn't need to really connect to internet service except to download and upload data. Uh, but you know you can take measurements offline and whatnot. The validators use what we call the validator dashboard. It's it's a separate product that also plugs into the, the into the blockchain, the near blockchain. Probably relevant. I don't know if we've we've said that yet. We're built on near protocol. Um, so big shout out. Uh, but we um, the validators are organizations, a variety of organizations that we've onboarded. We oh gosh, I don't I don't have an exact number. Sue, so let me know if you if you have a better number. But um, I think it's around twenty at this point. Um, we have yeah, perfect. So we, we have a variety of organizations that um, some of them are existing VVBs that work with Vera and Gold Standard. So they have a list of about 20 organizations all around the world that are used for that uh, data auditing of project data every five years. So we have we have a few of those uh, as validators. We also have remote sensing companies, environmental engineering companies. We're onboarding you know, university programs, things like that. 
So we bring in lots of these qualified individuals who have an interest in monitoring these types of projects and, and validating this kinds of data. And the structure in which we've built to have them all make an evaluative decision is based a lot on uh, prediction markets like Augur or Flux Protocol, if you're familiar with those. So basically you have, you know, in, in decentralized fashion, you have a bunch of people and you need them to make the decision. Is this data legitimate or not? And so we've essentially created a, a, a sort of model of, of a, a games theory economic system to help all of those decentralized actors reach consensus on what is the decision about this data upload from this specific project at this point in time. Right. And so one of the things, because you're tagging these trees, let's, I, I'm going to focus on trees because I think it's the most tangible and the easiest to wrap your head around. I know there's other things, agroforestry and stuff like that. So um, it, the validator, therefore, could take a look at the data that's being transmitted. And one of the things they can make a decision on is the continuity of the data. Right. So they see the tree being measured in these stages and now it's a year later if it was significantly taller or looked significantly different we would have an idea that there was malingering going on is that an accurate statement great word exactly yeah yeah <laughs> malingering yes exactly nothing keeps uh, yeah. keeps coming in with uh interesting words there i read dictionaries before i do these yeah so uh, this now, here's another question. Rez and I did a deep dive on uh, methodologies last episode um, because we thought it was important and also because we thought it would be important to ask you these questions. You can verify that the tree is there. You can verify, let's say, that it has a certain height and girth and all this, all this. Now, what about things like additionality? What about things like leakage? What about things like permanence? Is that in your purview right now? Or are you basically saying, hey, we're just doing the recording. That's going to be left for some other entity or another aspect of this. Precisely, yeah. So when we start thinking about additionality and permanence and leakage and, and you know baseline scenarios and all that good stuff, that's that's when we start talking about carbon accreditation and carbon methodology. So in the future, if, o, if OFP was to be providing that kind of a service, we would be incorporating that into any consideration, any accreditation here um, for on-chain issued, issued carbon credits. Uh, right now, though, what we're focused on is, is just the core monitoring aspect of it. We want to get that part right. We want to make sure that the technology works. We want to make sure that it, it, it is very easy um, and globally accessible because it's it's you know hard to create a tool set for for an entire global population because we have projects Joe could probably talk all, all over the world um, and uh, and yeah but but yeah exactly if if we were to be doing that it would be um, in line with uh, the existing standards with like Vera or the CDM uh, incorporating barrier assessments things like that for for additionality assessments so that stuff's um, super super important and it, it ties into the global kind of VCM market in, in, in large. So, yeah. And so uh, in terms of these methodologies, in terms of the recording and measurement, those methodologies are, though outside of the fact that you're doing it more often, are those methodologies pulled from Vera and ACR? Have you created, like, how did you come up with those methodologies for recording? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, we would we would most likely be using the the theoretical best practices of, of whatever's out there right now. So I, I don't think that OFP is is necessarily looking to um, reinvent the wheel right now. I know I know a lot of people in the refi space have some very creative and, and very interesting and legitimate ideas about uh, different aspects and components of, of the voluntary carbon market, like additionality and things like that. But um, I don't know if we would be necessarily diverting or or, yeah. or moving with that. So yeah, I think we, at this point, a... it's, it is uncertain, and we're just trying to focus on onboarding forest projects and, and making sure that we have a tool set um, for, for recording forest data and, and accurately kind of measuring what's going on that, that, that works for them. Yeah, we had a whole uh, episode uh, 
uh, breaking down methodologies and what the additionality, permanence, and leakage uh, means in the last episode. So great to tie that in. Um, about yeah. these validators. A... Yeah, what was that, Rez? Uh, about these validators. Um, so you mentioned that uh, you have over uh, 20 uh, validators onboarded into the system. Uh, what do their incentives look like? What makes them want to participate in the system? It's a great question. It ties into our crypto economic model. So as with all decentralized systems, rather than having a, a centralized boss that tells you what to do, um, you, prov you provide financial incentives to encourage ecosystem mm -hmm. participants to, to do what you want them to do. So we, we have a native cryptocurrency asset called the OPN token, open token. And that token is basically a utility and governance token. It's used both to stake on decisions about the data uploads. So like affirmative or denying decisions on the data uploads. Um, it's also used for governance and, and things like that. So validators are rewarded in these tokens for their decisions to um, validate this project data. And the token is then, um, yeah. And so it's it's uh, uh, that that's in essence kind of the the financial model for them. Um, we provide for some validators a, an initial amount of tokens to begin with, mm -hmm. um, and then from there anything that that they that they gain or, or claim afterwards is, is theirs to keep. So that's that's the system that we have in place right now. It's not too dissimilar from other um, kind of data prediction market models and, and things like that. Okay, so it's a prediction market uh, type of model. Uh, how do people cash out? Um, okay, so how they cash out basically is just how you cash out anything. And um, so, mm -hmm. yeah, we're 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 part of the New York community, New York ecosystem, and uh, and and so that would be kind of where that goes there. But um, the the value of the OPN token is is through the utility token. But but there's also really cool things that we can do with that, right? Like we built this ecosystem to be one that can scale. Um, we're going to be open sourcing all of our code. And we want people to be able to build new types of things on top of this, right? So with OFP, we basically give anybody in the world this base code for an environmental data oracle with a preset group of decentralized qualified validators to evaluate this environmental data. So if someone wants to come in and build a, let's say, a, a mangrove vertical on OFP, for example, a mangrove carbon methodology vertical that takes the existing code for our dashboard and for the validation, and just plugs in a data upload to the validation and then has some token mint contract to create carbon credits off of that, that's totally foreseeable. That, that is totally feasible within the, the structure of what we built. And, and that's something that we want to encourage people to do. So there's what we wanted to do, most importantly for all of this, besides providing this platform that's um, free to use, that's what it is, um, for forest projects is to enable other people that want to leverage what we've already built to create new and interesting tools. Um, so an important note too, is that with the validators, the reason we issue the token is um, because this makes it free to use for any forest projects, because we have this independent crypto economic model that doesn't rely on uh, fees or any anything paid in by the forest projects that are doing the monitoring themselves. Mm -hmm. So I guess a potential use case would essentially be uh, actually perhaps being a source of data for a bunch of uh, carbon projects on uh, different methodologies, perhaps? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it, it would be 100% a, a, a thing that, they, that, that that could be used for. Um, you could also build a carbon dex off of this. You could build um, you know, any, any, any sort of refi project that you could possibly think of uh, using our code and, and plugging into the ecosystem. And we have a, a massive, thriving, awesome ecosystem filled with really cool, smart people. So. Yeah, and I'm excited to see where the growth trajectory goes, but we're, we're right now just focusing on, on laying that foundation and making sure that it is something that is easily scalable. 
All right. Very cool. Uh, Follow-up question. Uh, yeah. So, uh, being a person that uh, does come from a data background, I uh, have this question of when we're talking about data, uh, what does being a data oracle mean? Uh, so RVs <laughs> like uh, tons of carbon uh, per hectare, or is this, you know, the picture is legitimate, or is this, uh, this picture represents this much uh, carbon, or like what, um, what is the output essentially of the system is what I'm asking. Great question. So the, there's some really cool remote sensing organizations right now that are doing some really interesting work on uh, creating maps that, that tell you exactly how much carbon is in a certain pixel on mm -hmm. a, uh, a GIS map or, or, or something like that. So um, we've been looking into integrating remote sensing data to aid in validation and verification of project data. But at this point, what the data output is, is just very, very basic. It's, it's the fundamental component that leads to everything else. And it is tree measurements. So tree height, tree diameter, and photos of living proof of certain trees within specific sample plots. So we don't require photos and, and the measurements of trees throughout all of the forest. Um, that's, that's not super scalable. Yes. We provide sampling plots according to CDM methodologies that are statistically significant. Mm -hmm. And then we require the projects to go and measure tree data at those specific sample plots. So you know, if we were to be doing carbon, basically you would just pull that measurements, plug them into some allometric equations or biomass expansion factors, um, and then through a few discount factors, you'd be able to get the carbon output, or at least the, the average carbon sequestered per hectare. And then because it's validated on a year-on-year -year basis, you'd be able to see that progression year-on-year -year and have that be verified. So the validators are, are purely just verifying at this point that the trees are alive and that the measurements that the projects are recording are, are within the statistical mean of, of what should be expected. Right? We have that growth trajectory. We, we map that out for them in the software that we built for them. So they're able to see the rates of change year on year between the tree measurements that are reported by the projects. And they're able to push back and question if any of those seem suspect. Um, oh, so, that's so, Yeah, yeah. So that's, it, that's it also kind of the, has a really cool side effect of um, mm, creating very large, nice data sets over time uh, that could be publicly accessible and that could allow even better modeling, even for the same kind of uh, remote sensing companies that we have trying to figure out how do you uh, generate a good uh, carbon estimate uh, purely from uh, looking at it from space, which is exactly. a, an ongoing, actually very hard question and uh, tends to uh, be different depending on the type of tree, for instance. So your model, you know, needs to uh, keep that in mind. And that gets very difficult if you don't have uh, these kind of uh, open uh, on the ground measurements. I love it. Precisely. Yeah. Local growth conditions are critical in, in training mm -hmm. those algorithms. And, and so, um, and that's, the, that's kind of why like the, the, the remote sensing stuff, it's great. It's, it's amazing. We see the trend lines bringing the cost of that and the accessibility of that closer to what individual projects can afford, but it, it's not quite there right now. I mean, the, mm -hmm. this, 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 these services, this imagery, it's typically still very expensive. Um, and, and also, it's, it's, if you're not trained properly, if, if, the, if the data isn't trained, uh, if, it, if you don't have good data sets, then it's not super accurate. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely, um, we saw that the ground data was just so important in this world yes. right now, and we really wanted to create an accessible way of accessing that and, and verifying that. Yeah, cool. uh, I'm reminded of this uh, good old uh, data science axiom that you can't improve what you don't measure. So fundamentally, <laughs> uh, nice. Fundamentally, uh, you you can't have good models without good on the ground data. 
this is functionally a very important core part of how we even get good satellite-based uh, uh, estimations. Uh, so, yeah. Totally. Res, I cool. like that you mentioned on the ground. I'm going to get Sue in on this because you deal with people who are on the ground as the coordinator of projects. First question I have for you is who, you know, this is, maybe let's start here. What does it mean to be a project coordinator? Like, what is your role? I've seen this and it might be esoteric knowledge. What would you share? What is, what is your life look like? What is your day-to-day? -day? What is your job responsibility? Sure. It's pretty mellow, man. No, I'm just kidding. It's, uh, we, so we, uh, a lot of what we do is communication because, I mean, a lot of people in refi find that these things like <laughs> biomass expansion factors are not super intuitive for people. So, you know, there's a lot of what we're explaining that needs to, you know, we we take people from all over the world, from all different backgrounds. Um, they're united by being forest managers of some kind. And we explain it to them. Um, so it's not just me. I, there's a team. Uh, we've got people who speak French, people who speak Spanish. So we're trying to, we're bringing on hopefully someone soon who speaks Portuguese. Um, and then we're going to get, um, we need somebody to represent kind of all of Asia. So we're trying to get just hubs that can speak to the largest percentage of people <laughs> that we can reach um, and communicate it as clearly as possible. So a lot of our my day is calls with people explaining what's going on. Um, and then Right now, what's been taking up a lot of my time, and this is what's probably most exciting um, for people kind of watching where we're at in terms of our progress, is that we're actively onboarding forest projects. That requires them to create a near wallet. It requires them to go through our dashboard. So uh, as of right now, we're, we're building out more streamlined versions of this because really scalability when, in all things climate is the most important thing. But for right now, it's very much like it's a technical process and we're, we're there along the way kind of helping them out. So you can think of what we do as just the point person between um, the technology and the people on the ground. So just kind of connecting those two. How many projects? Uh, Go ahead, sorry. Go ahead. Who pays the people on the ground? So, like, there are these validators that confirm the, that the, these measurements that the people on the ground make. Uh, then there's the projects themselves uh, who uh, operate an area. Uh, so, is it the projects themselves that then go on the ground and measure? Or is this like a third group that you're mediating in this uh, platform? Good question. It's the projects themselves. And that's a really key uh, thing to understand about what we're doing. And I think it really is gets at kind of the Web3 ethos of you're controlling your data, you're an active participant. Um, if you juxtapose this with like the legacy system, you're like, okay, here's my forest, like, please give me a good answer, scientists. You know, like you you have no, a, a lot of times you're, it's kind of like Kafka-esque, I hate to say it, but you're just like sitting waiting, like maybe in two years, like my $100,000 is gonna give me carbon credits. And you just like, it, it's just, it's a system that is extremely frustrating for people. So what we're doing is we're saying uh, no upfront cost. You go out, you do the measurements yourself. Um, you monitor the progress of your validation. Um, the credits go directly. <laughs> the theoretical outcomes of whatever you're doing will go directly to your wallet. And so that there's really this sense of being an active stakeholder in your own project. Um, and then that way, it's also extremely cost saving because we don't have to fly out teams to do those measurements. People do the NC2 measurements themselves and they get validated through uh, the validation model that Luke was explaining. Yeah, and the validation model keeps the projects honest. Uh, so there's this uh, difficult uh, problem generally when you have on the ground measurement done by the project because they have uh, potentially really high incentives to inflate the numbers as much as they can get away with. Exactly. And so that's this is uh, another just clear Web3 innovation, which is that. Uh, 
it's been so expensive to get that level of certainty uh, <laughs> historically um, because, mm -hmm. and so we have this network that Luke's saying of validators all over the world. If a validator that focuses on like East Asia um, gets an upload from Mexico, like they're just gonna be like, okay, well, I don't have expertise in that area. I'm not gonna fly my satellites out there. I'm not gonna do it. But when we have this network, we have the network effects and it's everything is way cheaper. Uh, it's an opt-in opt-out system for validators. Um, and that way we're able to keep costs as low as possible, which is, as we said right at the beginning, simplicity, accessibility, that's really the key to OFP. Yeah. And I saw uh, the demo yesterday. Another cool thing that I liked was, you know, we're talking about agency here, essentially, is that these projects now have agency over the recording and verification and monitoring of their projects. And a really sure. cool thing was that it truly is democratized because if you trust me as a project manager, you could invite me to do that for you. I believe it was like through an email. You just get like an email and then you you, you can do it. So like if you have a project in uh, where you are, I won't dox you, um, and I was to fly there, I could then do the, the um, use the app to to generate the data. So it, it's, you know, there isn't, there isn't gated behind uh, any sort of um, system, right? As long as you grant me permission, I can do it. Precisely. And that's actually another... Oh, go ahead, Luke. Yeah, I, 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 sorry, Joe. I just wanted to add one one cool thing, too, is that uh, to add on to what Joe was saying, uh, we're also adding in the, the ability to delegate validators. So if you have OPN tokens, which are the, the utility token to that is used to validate project data, you can delegate that to other people that might not necessarily have that many or any OPN tokens in order to validate data. So Let's say that you have a project in the remotest part of the Congo Basin or the Amazon, um, and you wanted to delegate your OPN tokens to a indigenous community that does project validation for OFP. That is 100% something that you can do. And then those people that are doing that on the ground validation or whatever validation they're doing, they receive uh, the, the, the vast majority of the rewards for that kind of work. So it's, it's kind of a, a way that we can, we've created a system where in which we can share the uh, rewards that are generated if we want to. Love it. So follow up for you, Sue, is could you like give us an overview of some projects on the tip of your mind? Like just who are these projects? What are they doing? Where are they? Sure. Yeah, happy to happy to give some a brief overview. So we have um, Luke and I were debating whether we say twenty nine or thirty projects because twenty nine is technically a smaller number, but it sounds more accurate. So uh, we have <laughs> we right. have uh, we have thirty projects that have joined uh, at this point, and so it's really important. People have been asking us for numbers, and it's kind of difficult because depending on how you kind of tranche them together, you'll get different results. But thirty projects is all of the projects that have gone through gotten registered and are getting ready to do their first upload. So there's more projects that are kind of in the pipeline. There's some projects that are really small, some that are really big, but 30 is a nice round number that we have for how many projects have joined so far. There are, um, I'll, I'll highlight a few of them that did beta testing with us because I've talked to them really extensively. So one, uh, Serena, she does, <laughs> she does, I'll just say Serena, uh, so I don't dox her, but she's an NFT artist. Uh, she works in the near community. So she's super crypto native. She's got 30 hectares of oak reforestation in Tuscany. And she's like, let's try this out. Let's test out the technology. She came from the crypto sphere. Then uh, we're working with a group of friends of Usambara. They've got hundreds of thousands of hectares in Tanzania. Um, they're, most of these projects start with a pilot, so they're not doing all of them right at once. But um, they, they have been actively reforesting the Usambara region, which has been like totally deforested um, in Tanzania. 
And so uh, that is like a community run project. And then we've got, uh, they're doing active reforestation. Another one we've got, uh, this guy Augustine that we're working with out in Liberia. Um, he's putting together a massive conservation project. So uh, these are different people from different um, kind of technological backgrounds, different aims. Some people want to do reforestation. Some people want to do conservation. So um, we have the, the thing that kind of brings them all together is that they are people Oftentimes they've been frustrated by the process of the legacy system to try to, you know, get their MRV needs met. Um, but ultimately they're people who want to just showcase the good work they're doing. Um, and they, they recognize that this end to end, uh, project verification that is available through blockchain is going to just give them with, you know, any number of future scenarios they're looking for. They know that having that, that baseline is just going to, going to help them with communicating with stakeholders, things like that. And another thing, Rez and I have discussed previously is uh, with the legacy system, if you're under a certain amount, if your project is of not certain scale, it doesn't become economically even viable for you to do it. So, you know, you could, in theory, have 10 plants in your backyard. This is free. This is open to use. Now you have a system that you can use. It's not going to cost you an arm and a leg to fill out. So are you seeing uh, projects of smaller scale also glomming on uh, to yeah. your, your protocol? Certainly. In fact, our original slide decks we made were like, we're built for small and medium sized projects because that's such an immediate use case we can imagine because so many people have been frustrated. We're finding actually that, you know, like Friends with Sambara, for instance, we've got these massive plots that it works just fine. So like it's, we're built really for everybody, but we definitely recognize the special use case. So we've got um, so a few permaculture projects in India, some Milwaukee projects. Um, I don't know. I guess you guys probably know Milwaukee by now, but it's when you plant really uh, dense stands of trees, uh, you accelerate succession, things like that. So um, we've got probably 10 projects that are fewer than 10, 15 hectares. So, um, and and that is really novel in the space, as far as we can tell, just because of all of the things we talked about before, which is the expense of validation, data collection, all those things. So by cutting those costs, we're really bringing in these, um, these stakeholders that are, have historically been left out of the system. And if uh, you are a project, a smaller project, bigger project, what's the best way to get a hold of you specifically? Or how do you get involved in the system? What would be the way that you'd recommend people to, 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 to start getting involved? Sure. So we've got a website. Uh, I jokingly said Discord because I'm a Luddite when it comes to that. But um, I would say, yeah, just go. I mean, you can email me, Joe at Open Forest Protocol. Ooh. But the way to do it, you just Ooh. go to our website. You go to projects, get started, fill out an information. And then I'll probably email you within 24 hours. <laughs> oh, nice. That reminds me. I need to read my email for this week. <laughs> You're going to get an email from Juanita. Um, inside All caps. Yeah, so uh, very cool. Very cool. And I also agree that uh, putting a specific non-round number, like if you want to make up a statistic, like 67% of people eat cheese. If I yeah. said 70%, nobody would believe me. 67? I'm credible. Who'd exactly. Be, who'd be crazy enough to come up with that crooked number, you know? <laughs> All right, Rez, any other questions? I mean, I think we've dug pretty deep. Rez, do you have any more questions, Any more thing, anything you want to dig at? I know you do. This is what you do. Actually, no. Like, uh, I, I really love this project. It feels very nicely scoped, uh, well-defined, and... Uh, uh, as a product person myself, I'm always like, you know, if if somebody defines something that is like nicely scoped, I go, ah, that's pleasurable. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it's like uh, it's design, a right? it's a real problem. Uh, I I can confirm uh, it's. Uh, it's a it's a very real problem, and uh, the implications of it are numerous. 
uh, one of them is that, yes, uh, for small projects, uh, it probably will never start making sense to uh, have specialized people go on the ground uh, just so they could uh, make on the ground measurements. If you have small projects, uh, <laughs> you know, just the cost of uh, coming out there might eat your entire uh, margin if you're doing right. a carbon project, for example. Uh, this is part of it. Uh, the second part of it is uh, just the fact that our uh, current uh, way we're doing MRV is very... Uh, uh, how do I put this? It's very top-heavy. It has a lot going on. Uh, it's... Uh, eh. And fundamentally, uh, what Open Forest Protocol seems to do is uh, a lot of trust-making uh, in the uh, validity of the data. Uh, which, as a data scientist, uh, by training, I'm always like, ah, oh, clean data, that's my favorite kind. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, we have this good term of garbage in, garbage out. You just like, uh, if you don't have clean data, you basically just don't have anything. Uh, so, and on top of this, all of this being public or publicly accessible uh, just means uh, over time, we're going to get better remote sensing models that actually tell the truth and we have something to compare against. And we can go like, you know, yes, your model is fine, but it performs worse than this other one in this like generalized nice data set we now have. And all of those things are, in my opinion, super cool. I love it. We're, just, we're gonna cut that and that's gonna be the first <laughs> OFP advertisement. It's just gonna be like, res approved. Yeah, res approved. You guys approved. have uh, done it. You have done the impossible. You have, you have satisfied res. And his uh, Dude, uh, his critiques of projects. This is amazing. This is this is amazing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Rez and I always talk about scope. We always talk about project scope. I know how much she and I believe in that too. And that's again, that's how I knew you guys were real. You had a, a very specific focus. Um, you understood the importance of simplicity and adoption. So yeah, also very impressed. All right. So one other thing I want to talk about. Um, we had mentioned this off air, and you had mentioned this yesterday on your stream. Was a working group for standardizing carbon credits. Is that something that you know you'd be comfortable getting into? I'm assuming that's public, public knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So you had mentioned you had a, a working group uh, with Toucan Klima, I believe, Regen Network, maybe some other entities, and you were working on a standardized carbon credit. What does that mean? How would you explain that to uh, a novice, a layman? Totally. So if we think about how cryptocurrency assets are currently kind of transacted and, and created, really, and then transacted, um, it's essentially just a smart contract that has a set of rules that allows you to do certain things with the token. And it gives it certain identity features, right? It tells you what type of token this is, how many there are. If it's a non-fungible token, it'll give you a little bit more information, like maybe link to an IPFS link for a JPEG, as a lot of people like to meme. But um, Essentially, with carbon, what we're seeing right now, and this is kind of where the conversation started, was that um, we were talking with a, a really, really cool project called Sinken, headed up by Adrian in um, in Berlin. And Sinken is a, is a great marketplace for carbon credits. And they kind of bridge the Web3 side. And they're one of the many platforms that do this, that bridge the Web3 side to the Web2 side, providing Web3 carbon markets to maybe more traditional uh, corporate purchasers of those carbon credits. So there's a very real problem that exists there where if he doesn't have a backend capable of handling a bunch of different tokens, all with different smart contracts, all with different identity features, different functions, things like that, it's going to be really hard for him to create a kind of menu board for these purchasers of carbon credits to see what, what, what are the different credits that he has? What are the different tokens that he has? So we realized like it would be a really, really helpful if we just had a unified carbon token standard where we can have a shared data set 
shared data attributes for each token, shared functions, and, and essentially create like a ERC-721 standard or whatever token standard you want to pick for uh, carbon tokens. So we've we've begun it. It's We're about, oh gosh, maybe like four or five months into it. Um, we have a lot of wonderful people. We got everybody from Region and Klima, Toucan, Flow Carbon, uh, D-Climate. Yeah, so we, we've had a few people even from IPFS that are that are joining in and, and helping out. There's a, a million others that I, I Carbon Fi that I'd love, love to name. But um, yeah, we're, we're essentially just trying to figure out what it does it take and how would we be able to create a shared understanding of this carbon token? Because we realized in the Web3 space, we have a tremendous opportunity. Um, a lot of people talk about different protocols as being competing, but I, I don't really know if that's the necessarily the best way to explain it because we're all kind of experiments, right? Nobody's really gotten to that point of like critical, insane success where we are the globally adopted, you know, no, nobody's really made it to that point. It's still so new. And so because we're all just kind of experimenting with different approaches here, it makes sense for us to collaborate in order to scale the space collectively, to make sure that we can all work together and, and make sure that we can interoperate and, and, and have this kind of shared fundamental base system. So that's really the, the, the focus of that group at this point. And um, yeah, it's, it's, we're trying, try, you know, sometimes we get sidetracked with questions about like, uh, you know, do we include additionality and, and you know, things like that. But it's, it's, it's still a, a very important issue that uh, I'm hoping we can be able to resolve at some point. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's basically that in a nutshell. Cool. And we're talking about like a standard, I mean, you're talking about the information that maybe it, would it be like information uh, inherent to the, to the token where you could look at, you know, I know that uh, you're talking about the, the interplanetary file system, right? That's a decentralized storage system. And so you could put, let's say an NFT that has a certain uh, data in it about vintage and methodology. Is that kind of what we mean by a standardized carbon token? Precisely. So when we look at the gold standard versus Vera registries, those are the traditional carbon accreditation bodies. Uh, I think Vera uses country for their location as an attribute and gold standard uses region. It's a really basic example, but it's a good, good, good indication that there are still discrepancies between these uh, carbon, these registry standards where whenever you purchase a, a carbon credit from one of those, those registries, they're, they're all publicly available. You can see the different data attributes there. Um, but they all vary and they're very different. And even th that small discrepancy can lead to some problems whenever we're trying to create a super user-friendly, accessible uh, marketplace sort of system. So we're just trying to create a shared, both taxonomical, like having the same vocabulary for these tokens, but also just a shared token standard that has similar functions, right? Do we include a retirement function on the carbon credit or is that something that's registry specific? So just kind of coming to terms with, with what we can do to increase uh, different refi protocol interoperability is is really the goal of that that working group right there. Yeah, uh, when it comes to and, data accessibility in carbon registries, that's a fascinating rabbit hole. Uh, uh, for context, there are quite a few organizations around the world uh, who, for instance, hire armies of uh, in, uh, interns to go over their uh, product uh, these. Um, mm, project documents and essentially <laughs> hand annotate huge data sets. Uh, this is just a side effect of this data not being structured and not being accessible in the first place. So if you're looking to get into exactly. refi, and there's your foot in the door or refijobs.com. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I just wanted to, you're, you're absolutely, both of you are totally right. Um, I, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't say that there, there has already been a lot of great work done with the Interwork Alliance, IWA, and, and Bico WG as well on this issue. So um, we're, we're just kind of trying to create a more specific uh, implementation. And, and yeah, that's, that's what we're doing there.
Very cool. I, so very awesome stuff. This is This Week in Refi. We would be remiss if we didn't cover a, a few stories. Let's do two. You guys up for two? We'll do the most fun of the of the stories we had curated. I want to get your opinions on this. Uh, John Oliver made the rounds in the refi space. He made a uh, scathing, um, critical uh, take on, um, I think it was just uh, carbon markets and voluntary carbon markets in general, yeah. right? Um, on his show. What's the show called? The... Uh, the make fun of things show. What is what is last it? Last week tonight. Last week tonight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so Vera uh, clapped back, as the kids would say. They put out an announcement in which they said, "Hey, John Oliver, uh, 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 here's why you're wrong." Uh, we have we all read this? Have you guys all read this or seen it or know about it? Well, LinkedIn post about it. <laughs> okay, okay, that's fair. That's fair. Um, I want to get your opinions on it. Sue, what is your opinion on? Did, did you see the John Oliver piece in particular? Yeah, I saw the piece. What what, yeah. is, what are your thoughts on that? So I remember there was a part where he was like making fun of the balloon guy. Um, and I think that like we, you can, there's of course so much to make fun of when it comes to doing the logic of offsets for massive corporations. And that's like, there's, there's a lot to critique there. And I think he got a lot of that right. Um, but what I've been focusing on with what we're doing, at least with OFP, is that like there is institutional money that like oil companies and you know people who are actively destroying the world want to put it into environmental work. And I, from my side, I see a lot of forest projects that really need some funds to make that happen. And if you can accurately measure carbon sequestration, then you kind of close that loop and you create actually really powerful tools for change. And I think that was kind of, I think that there was so much like kind of sarcasm and like there was so sardonic and just like there was it, there was this sense of negativity about the whole thing but it's like if you really sit down and think about it um the problems are in the data and not necessarily in the logic of the system the system actually does work nicely but it's laughable now because the data is so bad so that's i mean i'm not sure exactly what vera said about that but i still think that the and this is something that if you just <laughs> accept that we're in late capitalism accept that these are the this is the way that society functions people respond to economic incentives i would like to see more of this i would like to see more tokenization of environmental behavior if you could mm -hmm. if you could tokenize plastic collection like that's i mean i don't like the logic of offsets but i like to be able to say i'm a company and i've drawn down 10 tons of plastic or whatever whatever you say so i just I, I that's not a super specific critique of the video but i think that a lot of people don't really think through the logic and they just think like oh well people are polluting the earth and doing offsets. And I, I think the, yeah. the logic of drawdowns that we're thinking through actually is, is quite, quite a consistent enterprise. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, the way we get out of climate change is either an economic solution or it's a political solution. So like, you know, those are the big ways we can affect things at scale right now. Uh, mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily often feel like the political solution is uh, moving anywhere near fast enough. Yeah. Uh, the second thing is just, uh, well, uh, John Oliver's criticism of the uh, voluntary carbon market was, was like relatively valid, uh, I could say, uh, but it was just, um, it's, it's sort of how I've seen mainstream journalists package uh, criticism of the carbon market that just rubs me the wrong way over and over again. And it's, you know, you, you check out any mainstream article about carbon credits, they always kind of have this same similar kind of structure of how they criticize the voluntary carbon market. There are these specific examples of past failures that uh, somehow seem to confirm that everything's bullshit forever. And uh, it, it's just like, 
I, I got really annoyed at this, and when I made the, <laughs> I made a tweet which basically said something like, you know, wheels are a failed concept. They struggle on uneven terrain. They get stuck in mud. <laughs> if wheels didn't exist, we wouldn't have city people with SUVs. Improvement is hopeless. Let's just all die, you know? Yeah, it's a dichotomy, right? If it's not perfect, yeah. we have to scrap it. And Yes. Yeah, I think that's a, because, a fair Exactly, point. because trying... It feels like, you know, trying and, like, maybe, like, not measuring up is somehow actively, like, incredibly bad while not doing every anything, which is the status quo at the end of the day. Like, just ignoring the problem entirely, this is somehow considered normal. So then we have this option of, like, yeah, you could try, but you're essentially a villain immediately. Or you could just ignore the problem and somehow it'll get solved on its own. And, yeah. you know, uh, I, I think it's really irresponsible when journalists package uh, these kind of discussions in this kind of wording of just going, you know, all improvement is Im impossible. Uh, examples from 15 years ago where things were done a lot worse are very valid and are valid right now and will never stop being valid. And there will forever be a increasing amount of examples of how carbon projects have been bad and we'll keep uh, using these to bludgeon the industry to death and it just feels incredibly unfair it's almost as if like exactly you know in the car industry every single failure uh failure that has ever existed is just used to es essentially just you know bludgeon the concept of vehicles for instance it's it's just nonsense it, it feels so unfair it does. I, I one of the things that. Go ahead, Luke. You go first. All right. Quick, quick thing. But I, I was just saying. I think that that's one of the things that makes me most excited about the refi space is that it provides that sort of new tool set and that new environment for innovation and improvement. Um, not saying that the existing system is is perfect or does not need to change or that it's completely broken, but um, innovation is never usually a bad thing. And and with the refi space, we're seeing this intense amount of new energy and, and innovation that's. Um, hopefully going to be able to produce some very valuable tool sets that can help improve the system and overcome a lot of the existing issues that are that are there. You going to say something too? Yeah, I mean, I just anecdotally, like I, I used to, my favorite band is Bright Eyes and I had to stop listening to them because Connor Oberst is always just complaining. Love Connor. Hey, Connor, shout out. Um, he lives close by. <laughs> if you guys know where that is, I'm seeing myself. Um, but, uh, anyway, so the whole time he's just complaining about things in society and I'm like, this is bad for my mental health. I can't listen to this. Like I need something more constructive. And I think John Oliver's kind of got that same kind of angle. Like he's like, I'm, I'm liberal and I'm outraged. And like, I think that's just yeah. like, that's something that I, I think, especially in a time of like, kind of what Rez was saying, like there's, this is such a crisis that like for us just to be like, uh, to offer criticism and uh, without really trying to recognize like. The, that this is an earnest effort to actually save us from the lifeboat. Like, I don't know. I think, I think it's, it is irresponsible to rest it. That's the rest of my case. There you go. We yeah. hate John Oliver and we think everything he does is bad. <laughs> exactly. It's been <laughs> decided. No. <laughs> we will keep bringing this up yeah. as an example why nothing he ever says is valid now. I think we nailed it. My, my like, perspective of it is like the criticisms were fair. It's not a matter of accuracy. It was a matter of proportion, right? Yeah. So he took a small portion of the market. He described it accurately, but then misrepresented it as if it was the entire thing. 
Um, and that's the problem. It was the proportionality because he could have uh, spoke to how there are studies that show that in areas with uh, thriving voluntary carbon markets, deforestation is decreased by 50 plus percent. He could have mentioned all of the things which was mentioned in the Vera clapback, which I'll post a link to, but he didn't. So it's just a matter of selecting what he wanted to select. Um, last thing I want to discuss, it's actually not quote, quote unquote a story, but it is at the same time. Um, Vera had a date to meet with people in the space. I believe it was August, res your lab, 30th. was it the 30th? Yes, August okay. 30th, yes. August 30th has come and gone. Vera to date has not, as far as I know, met with actors in the space. I think they said that they wanted to make sure that it was open to everybody. Uh, I posted a tweet um, saying that, that it was a horrendous look. Uh, we have waited for, uh, since how long? Uh, four months, five months? Um, and this feels like forever. Yeah, yeah, In crypto yeah. time, it basically is forever. Yeah. I felt like that was a horrendous look. <laughs> what do your guys take on them not showing up or rescheduling? Let's be more uh, diplomatic. And what do you foresee uh, in, from Vera in the future in terms of cooperating with Web3? Do you have an opinion on that? Luke, I'll defer to you. I, you know, I... I, I... I can't really speak to what their motivations are or what they're thinking. Um, I, I think that up until this point, they've been they've been the dominant kind of space and voice in this in this VCM. I mean, they in, in terms of nature based solutions and nature based projects, um, they, they dominate the voluntary carbon market. But all I can say, I guess, is just I, I hope that the refi space continues to mature, continues to be open to that type of collaboration, and and continue to build those bridges towards being more friendly to the traditional VCM. And I hope that they start to recognize the the opportunity that exists for collaboration there, because um, not that there's necessarily that's not being explored, or or perhaps that's not being explored to the extent that certain people want. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, I just hope that we are able to kind of listen to each other and 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 on our end as well, continue to build, right? Because this is a very new space, and, and I, I can I can perhaps see from their perspective how that might look, given that we're so new and that we you know may or may not be making claims about the industry and all that sort of stuff. So I just hope that we we are able to kind of work together and continue to listen to each other. So I, I don't know about the commentary period, but I, you know, I, I just hope that we are able to be open to one another and, and, and continue to develop this going forward. Because at the end of the day, right, we're, we're all kind of on the same team with the same common mission. So it's, it's not so much a matter of who's doing what right, but how can we both move in the same direction? Yeah, anything you want to add to that, Sue? That was well said, very well said. Very uh, diplomatic. Very diplomatic. Um, I just think like their hesitancy is one of two things. It's either that they don't think that what refi is doing is legitimate, or they have some kind of like capitalist, like, oh, we need to stay on top and we can't address these people because they're like a threat to us. And I think that's probably not what it is, that second part. I think it's probably the former. I hope that's not what it is because that we're in the business of saving the world. We're not in the, you know, that's, that should at least be the idea, not like keeping a hegemony over a market. Um, but I, yeah, so I think that it's probably a legitimacy thing. So the, all we can do is just keep being legitimate and like not, don't give John Oliver anything else to talk about in the meantime, you know, like that's the key is, I think that's what we need to recognize is that we're kind of the underdogs in refi, we're new to the space. And there's been a lot of people who have taken that responsibility and done really sketchy stuff. So <laughs> I think that's that's the takeaway is that like if there if this is how Vera is seeing this and we just need to give them, you know, better examples to <laughs> change their mind. Yeah. So you have the approach of make sure your house is in order before you start criticizing other people, which is uh saying right. from one of Rez's favorite 
internet philosophers. No. Um, <laughs> uh, no, but I do, I do like that message. I think that is an important message. Um, cool. Uh, Luke, very diplomatically stated, I saw you disarm a troll, one of the worst trolls in the history of Zoom meetings. I have to bring this up. That's why I mentioned the name Juanita. It was absolutely oh, fascinating. Juanita. I saw a person come into a group of 30 people yesterday and start screaming obscenities and just screaming like a, a crazy person. And you handled it. So I knew you were real at that moment. And I'm not even kidding because I think that should be the test for any like uh, person of authority in any of these projects. If you can't handle a Web3 troll, what are you doing in this space? Where did you learn to handle those web... Last question. Where did you learn to handle those Web3 trolls? It's really easy whenever they're not on camera and you can just imagine them as a screaming baby because that's all they are, right? They're, they're just trying to get attention. They're just trying to do... They're, they're trying to use blunt force to, to disrupt something. So if they, if they had meaningful contributions, then there's a, there's a place to debate that and discuss that. But um, honestly, I, I just don't place any value in that. I think that they, uh, yeah, don't, don't, don't earn any respect or, or respectful response if they, if they approach it in that way. So I think ignore, ignore and keep pushing forward and, and have a good, I mean, we just moved, moved mediums to a place where they couldn't reach us. So uh, it's, it's unfortunate that that, that is the, the case. But as I kind of mentioned there, like, that also provides a good contrast. That never happened to me before, but it provides a good contrast between the good people on the internet, such as the the folks here, and 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 most of the other people that are participating in good faith, and and the others. And so, you know, the more we can focus on the good, I think the better. Little does Luke know, I am like the master troll when I'm not doing this. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit bored online. Uh, I I actually I messaged Luke after that happened, and I was like, I love living in the future. Like, there's something so funny to me about like trolling. Like, you can take the most like earnest online discussion, and then someone can just join and start screaming like i i find that delightful <laughs> it's the best sue you're a hundred percent right because in, in the span of 10 seconds people were talking about dmrv and then the next like literally five seconds later some guy was yelling about his willy wonker like it was yeah. incredible man like you show me one other space in which that happens regularly and right. i'll give you a million dollars it's, it's this one or it's none of them like it, it's it, yeah but i i think it's uh it's exactly this thing right um I think generally people are really pissed off when this happens if they personally just take themselves a bit too seriously. And there needs to be this element of being able to, uh, you know, laugh at the insanity of life. Otherwise, you will go insane. Like, I, I'm sorry, viewers, listeners. Uh, <laughs> if, if you are living a constant melodrama because uh, you're taking yourself too seriously, it's not good for your mental health. Uh, you know, step back, learn to laugh. Uh, laughing is good. For Sage you. advice. I thank you both for joining us. Uh, very informative. I will leave links to OFP's website, your Discord. Um, I know you're a Telegram guy. I'll leave a link to the Telegram. I think there's one of those as well. Uh, we will catch you all on the next one. Remember to ape responsibly. Peace, dudes and dudettes. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having us. Thank you all.